I'm Grace, and this is Serial Reader. Hey y'all, welcome back to Serial Reader, and welcome to part two of the Nautic Family House of Horrors. Um, Pretty intense case we got going on, but this is the final part. So, yeah, it's going to be good. Also, I just wanted to mention really quick, I believe now there's going to be ads. So, I didn't want that to, like, be a shock to anybody. But, yeah, I think there's going to be a few ads here and there. I'm still learning how to make them flow so it's not like in the you're in the middle or I'm in the middle of a sentence and then it's, like, a huge ad for, like, Kohl's or something. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I... I'm not not at the point yet where I think I don't think I can choose the ads yet. I don't know. I'm still I'm figuring it all out. But yeah, just letting you know, I think from here on out, there are going to be a few like ads here and there. I have to. I don't have a choice. Sorry. Um, so yeah. So today we're going to be talking about um, the other half of the story. So in last episode, we talked about Kathy Loreno and how her how she was murdered by Shelly, awful woman, and the awful, terrible things that Shelly did to her daughters and her nephew Shane. Um, so we're going to talk about two more murders, and yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to reveal. I don't. No spoiler alerts. We're just we're gonna delve into more stuff. How about that? So yeah, let's get started. So this is Future Grace. Um, I've gone back and edited the audio for this and I just wanted to put this clip in here before we get into it. About halfway through this episode, I switch from saying not Nautic to Notech or maybe it's the other way around. I don't know. This last name has caused me so much trouble, but I just wanted you to be aware that if you're like, she's pronouncing it two different ways. Yeah, I know. I I don't know what happened. So I really, there it's pronounced so many different ways in like documentaries and, and footage and that kind of stuff. So really, however you want to say it, you just say it. But yeah, I just wanted to put this clip in there so you're not like, she doesn't know what she's talking about. She's pronouncing it all types of different ways. It's late and when I recorded this, it was late, and so I'm ti- I was tired. So, yeah, <laughs> sorry. Let's just get into it. So the story that everyone was sticking to was that Kathy had run off with her fake boyfriend, Rocky, and it seemed like nobody was really asking questions, but Shane would combat this theory. When Shelly would tell the family, you know, we got to keep telling the story, we got to keep saying that Kathy ran off with Rocky, Shane would say things like, but she didn't. That's a lie. And Shelly would come back and tell him, well, you don't know that, but this is just absolutely delusional because Shane had helped Dave drag Kathy's body to the fire pit, but he backed down. He didn't want to argue with her, so even though her plan of Kathy running away with Rocky was in full swing, Shelly started to shift gears because she started to get a little bit worried. Um, She didn't doubt her plan would work, but she thought that maybe she needed a backup plan. 
So her gears shifted towards Shane. So they would have these like family meetings throughout this whole thing arranged usually usually by Shelly just so that she could make sure everyone was sticking to the story and she could like quiz them like, oh, where did Kathy go? Who did she go with? Just because she's crazy. Um, and she wanted to make sure nobody diverted from the story and that everyone was on the same page. And during one of these meetings, she looked at Shane and said, if you tell anyone, we will all pin it on you. Shane stood up and said, but I didn't do anything that you didn't tell me to do. And Shelly said, but that's what we'll do. We'll say you killed her. You killed Kathy. Shane insisted that he would never say anything against his family and that his lips were sealed. But Shane was smart, and he knew that in time Shelly would turn on him. He knew that the police was going to figure this all out one day, and when they did, Shelly would pin it all on him. So he weighed out his options. He was either going to tell someone what had happened with Kathy, or he was going to run away. So the uh, the family had some neighbors across the street, and Shelly soon became paranoid about them. She demanded that Nikki and Shane sneak over into the neighbor's crawl space and listen for any type of red flag that the neighbors knew something. Shane told Nikki that he wasn't going to do it, but Nikki believed it was important because her mom said that it was important, so Nikki did it. For um, more than a year after Kathy's death, Shelly became increasingly paranoid by the minute. The punishments and abuse increased for both Shane and Nikki, but Sammy surprisingly lived in a completely other world than the two oldest. She was popular. She wore nice clothes. Nikki went to school and did her best to blend in, but she was quiet. She didn't invite anyone over, and she obviously didn't have a boyfriend because she was just too scared. Um, But Shane had really reached his limit. And all the while, Shelly was convinced that he was going to tell. Dave kept assuring her that he wouldn't do that, but she just didn't trust him. So one day, Dave came home, and Shelly met him at the door. Shelly's face was red, and she had been crying, and she was shaking. She held up a pair of bloody underwear and told Dave that she found them in the woodshed and that Shane must have hidden them there. Dave knew pretty much instantly what Shelly was insinuating, and um, he rejected the idea and said, absolutely not, Shane would not do this, but Shelly insisted that they were Tori's panties and that Shane was abusing their baby and that Dave had to do something. The girls didn't believe a single word, and they knew Shane would never do such a thing, and they They obviously knew that their mother was a liar, so they knew that she was lying about this. Of course, Shane denied it with everything he had and said he would never hurt Tori, but Shelly persisted and Dave beat Shane to a pulp that night. The next morning, Shane had had enough and he ran away. Maybe. Shelly and Dave gathered the girls in the living room and told them that Shane had run away. It was February 1995, just a couple weeks before Nikki's 20th birthday. Shelly and Dave asked the girls if they had heard anything uh, that night before, but none of them had. 
Shelly brought in a little wooden birdhouse that Shane had made and told the girls that Shane had left her this birdhouse as a gift with a note that said, I love you, mom. No one obviously ever saw the note because I don't think that it existed. And Nikki was extremely skeptical of this story. She said that she that Shane hated their mom and there was absolutely no way he would ever leave her a note or a gift. Sammy didn't buy the cozy relationship story between Shane and their mom either, but she didn't want to think that her mom would lie about that because she knew that if she lied about it, what else was she lying about? But Nikki knew there was absolutely no way that Shane would leave their mother a loving note or a gift because he absolutely hated her. It started to bother Nikki, but she didn't want to think that anything bad happened to the person that she considered her brother. Later that day, Shelly and the older girls, Nikki and Sammy, went looking for Shane, but oddly enough, this little excursion only lasted like less than an hour. When usually, if when Shane, because Shane had run away before, so usually Shelly would make them look for hours and hours on end, but Nikki stated that this time they only looked for Shane like maybe a couple of times and each hour was less than or each time was less than an hour. So finally, the girls got a little bit of some of the answers they were looking for. Um, Their mother told them that Shane was fishing on Kodiak Island and she would say things like, oh, he called when you were at school. You just missed him. He's doing great. He misses all of us. Nikki decided not to ask why their mother was the only one to receive these calls. With Kathy and Shane both gone, Nikki became Shelly's main target again. Nikki most of the time slept in one of the outbuildings or the woods up behind the house trying to stay warm. She could see when she was sleeping outside and she mostly slept outside in the woods. And when she was Sleeping outside, she could see, like, the headlights of different cars of Sammy's friends that were bring, bringing her home from wherever they had been. She would see the glow of the light in Tori's bedroom window. And she loved her sisters more than anything, though she always wondered why her mother saw her so differently and treated her with such hatred. She called Nikki garbage, a loser, a whore, any nasty name that she could think of. She told her that no one would ever love her, but then on the flip side, every now and then, Shelly would just let her inside with no warning, just she could come in. She would fix her something hot to eat, and she would tell her how much she loved her. Then, without warning, she would put her back outside, often naked, and by this time, the violence began to escalate again. One day, Nikki was working outside, and her mother came at her with a knife. Nikki ran away, but Shelly lunged and pinned Nikki down and stabbed her leg with the knife. When Shelly had seen what she'd done, she backed off and she let her go. Nikki ran into the woods and she definitely needed stitches. Um, that she knew, but she knew that she couldn't seek medical attention for the same reasons that Kathy couldn't because then someone would know. Nikki slept in the woods that night and went that night. And when she came in the house the next morning, she wasn't bleeding. She was freezing and dirty. Um, Her mother said nothing about what had happened. It was like it never even occurred. 
So just a little aside, I read this um, and like just keep this in mind. In mid-September of 1996, more than two years after the murder of Kathy, um, Shelly applied for a teacher's aid position with the South Bend School District. She lied and said that she was a self-employed tax preparer, but was now ready to return to her first love, which was caring for children. <laughs> she said, quote, I have spent a good part of my life raising my children and helping with their schoolwork, their school activities, volunteering at their school, and even helping their friends from time to time, end quote. She said she's, okay, this is just like insanity. She's completely delusional. She said she felt she had the necessary patience to work with special needs children. Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that, Shell. I wouldn't say that you have the necessary patience to work with any child or really anybody. You need to be locked up forever. But it's just like, how delusional can this woman get? Like, what I what is wrong with her? Like, I, I need answers. I need to know. There's, yeah. So I just felt like that was an interesting tidbit. So Nikki found herself kind of banished to do yard work all day and like, I really don't think that there needed to be any type of yard work that required, like, 12 hours of her outside. I think it was just a form of, of punishment. But, um, yeah, so Nikki was outside all day working in the yard. But the two youngest sisters, Tori and Sammy, they went to school and acted just like the other kids. Tori was said to be a quiet little girl who has was really too young to see what their mother had done to Kathy, and she'd been shielded from the punishments that were given to Nikki and Shane. Sammy was said to be, quote, a social queen bee who used her sense of humor as a cover for the awful life that was at home with her mother, end quote. She used her humor as kind of a curtain that she put around everything. Her friends knew that her mom was mean with a lot of rules and punishments that went beyond what their parents gave them, but that's that was kind of the extent of their knowledge. So this was the time when the two older girls were getting older. Obviously, they were getting big, and they, according to Shelly, were spending too much time together, and Shelly didn't want them talking behind her back. So she tried to force kind of a wedge between the two girls. She would tell Sammy all the time that Nikki was a bad influence, and Sammy outwardly agreed, but inwardly Sammy thought this idea was pretty much laughable because Nikki worked in the yard all day. Like, she didn't do anything but work in the yard. She didn't drink or use drugs. Um, looking back, Sammy said she struggled to remember a single time when she and Nikki hung out um, in each other's bedrooms after they moved to Monahan Landing, which is where they were living uh, now. Their mother did not want them spending time together alone. And in my opinion, she just didn't want the two to create like a force where they could escape or they could leave or, you know, they could become something stronger than Shelly. So the only contact the two sisters had was when they were doing their chores, but even over time, those moments kind of just decreased. After Kathy and Shane disappeared, they had stopped altogether. 
so the girls were not in contact with each other, which is just, like, heartbreaking to me. Like, I just feel so bad. I feel bad for all of them, but I feel so bad for Nikki. Like, yeah, it's just, like, I seeing your other two sisters who you love so much are not being, like, you have to, it's so, it must be so lonely and so isolating to know that, like, your mother hates you so much, but, like, your other two sisters aren't getting nearly as much abuse as you, and it's like, why me? Yeah, I I don't think we'll ever have an answer to that, but. Uh, Sammy recalled, quote, Nikki was always outside. She was out doing chores until late. I had my friends and was busy at school, and I just remember my sister just not being there. She was there, but not around. In my heart of hearts, I think she was being groomed by my mom not to be here anymore, end quote. Okay, so remember Laura Watson? She's Shelly's stepmother. She raised Shelly. So, and she's a great woman, but she got news that Shane had kind of disappeared, but she had just figured that Shane was um, being a typical teenager, and we know she would try to reach out to talk to him, and he never responded, you never answered the phone, and Shelly would tell Laura, oh, you just missed him, he was, you know, out hanging with some of his buddies, but... Then Shelly would play the victim and say she was at her wit's end because Shane had run away. So it's very contradictory. Like, stick to your story, Shell. Like, what are – She told Laura, don't worry. You know, he always comes back or we'll find him and bring him home. Laura, during those exchanges, she felt a, a like, sense of relief because she thought that Shane was – or that Shelly was out looking for Shane and she thought, oh, he'd be running on the streets of Tacoma if not for Shelly and Dave. Shane had not once ever led on to Laura what was really going on in that house with Kathy and the things that Shelly made him do. Laura had no idea. He didn't tell her how he would have to sleep on a concrete floor in a cold basement or in Nikki's closet or at times in an outbuilding she didn't know a thing. So finally, Laura was, was, you know, starting to realize Shane would be happy to call me because Shane and Laura had a tight bond. And Laura kept calling and was like, have you found him? I'm getting worried, Shelly. And Shelly finally said, okay, you know what? He's up in Alaska. He's working on a fishing boat up there. You know, he's wanted to do that for a really long time. So we're just going to leave him. And Laura believed this because why would Shelly lie, she thought, about that? Like, why would she lie about that? She knew that Shelly was a liar, but this didn't seem like something she would lie about. But she knew that something wasn't quite right, because she knew that he would have been happy to tell Laura about this. So there was an exchange between Laura and Shelly, and Shelly had said, quote, I just talked to him. He's doing great. He loves it up there. It's his dream come true. I'll tell him to call you the next time we talk, end quote. Laura pushed back a little bit and said, quote, well, he never said that to me, end quote. And Shelly said, what are you talking about? And Laura pushed a little harder and said, Shelly, he never told me that fishing was his dream and that was never in the cards for him. 
Shelly came back and said, well, you weren't close to him like we are. And Laura said, I've known him since he was born. He said he wanted to finish school. Shelly, you know that. And Shelly said, well, he changed his mind and Shane was all about making money. That's why he left and he'll be back. I know it. So Laura had no other option than just to back off. She knew something wasn't quite right, but she wasn't expecting anything else at all. So it's 1993 and Nikki has graduated from, uh, I don't know how to say this, Willop Valley High, I think is how you say it. And she wanted to get a college diploma and move away from her parents and everything that she'd ever known. So she enrolled in Grays Harbor Community College with a plan of earning a degree in criminal justice. She said she was lonely and almost didn't dare to hope for a future that involved happiness and love and freedom, but she did hope a little bit, and she knew that she deserved better. But of course, her mom went after her dreams, like instantly. Firstly, the clothes that Nikki wore as a class would disappear. All that she had to wear were the sweatpants that she used when she was working outside, so they were dirty and torn, and... She would have to show up on campus looking like that, and it would chip away at whatever personal pride she, she'd been able to grow by being away from that awful place that she called home. During, during the day, yeah. So next, Shelly told Nikki that she no longer had a bedroom upstairs, and she told her that she would now be sleeping in the living room floor. It was the same place that she made Kathy sleep. And Nikki knew right then that something was happening. Then Shelly took away the money and transportation to class. She said, quote, we are cutting you off, Nikki. You don't deserve anything we've done for you. You are selfish and ungrateful. Dad and I mean it this time, end quote. So Nikki had no car, no money for bus fare, no clothes to wear to class. And that essentially meant no more school and no more dreams of getting out of Raymond and there was nothing that she could do. So Shelly put her to work in the yard again, but Shelly was never content with the work that Nikki was doing, and she would yell at her. She would, you know, say, you're lazy, and you need to get a job. (laughs) She told her she needed to get a job, but she took away everything that Nikki needed in order to get a job. Nikki was going to school to get a job. Just like, it blows my mind. Nikki saw this statement as laughable because she had no transportation, no money. She showered outside with the hose. Like, how in the world is she supposed to get a job? She was technically living, she was tech, like technically living in her family's home with her mother and father, but she was homeless in nearly every other way. So she finally spoke up and she said it took everything she had, but she said, "Quote: I can't get a job. Look at me. I have nothing to wear." no way to get anywhere, end quote. Nikki remembered years later, she said, quote, I was yelling at her and him and my mom would put, put it, put on an innocent act, sorry, put on an innocent act and say, you should have told me you needed a car. I had no idea that was your problem, end quote. Come on, Shelly, like, Nikki was starting to get stronger physically and mentally, and she's getting older. And one time, 
Nikki refused to do something that her mother had told her to do, and her mom came chasing after her. She tackled Nikki and started screaming at her and pulling her hair, and Nikki fought back. She pushed her, and Shelly fell to the ground, and she told her mom to screw off and, like, don't ever touch me, and she ran back into the house and saw Sammy, and she was kind of on this, like, adrenaline high because she had never really spoken back like that to her mother before, and she told Sammy, like, I just, I pushed mom down, and I told her never to touch me, like, it felt so good, and a few days later, after the shoving match, Shelly approached Nikki, and she said, you know, Sammy doesn't want you here anymore fighting with your mother or fighting with her mother the way that you've been doing. So I'm sending you to Aunt Trish's. So Trish was Dave's sister and she was nearly a stranger to Nikki. Nikki had only seen her like maybe a couple times in her life. She lived four hours away in Hope, British Columbia on a reservation. Shelley gave her daughter some clothes, $50 in cash, drove her to the Greyhound bus station in Olympia and sent her on her way. Shelly had told Nikki that it was only going to be for like 10 days and then she'd come back home. Nikki was out of, out of her teen years, but she had never been anywhere by herself. She was a little bit, just a little bit scared, a little bit nervous, but it turned out this trip to her aunt's house was probably the best thing that had ever happened to her. She ended up telling her aunt things that were happening at home with like little to no detail because she didn't you know, she was still scared, but she, you know, would say like bad things are happening there. Please don't send me back. Like I'll stay here. I'll work for you. And so the days turned into weeks and then into a couple of months, Trish cleaned churches and houses and would ask Nikki to help on weekends. Nikki would learn to tie fishing nets. So she was working, but Nikki didn't mind the work because no one yelled at her. No one was telling her she was worthless, and Nikki never, ever wanted to leave. Sammy understood why Nikki had left, of course, but Tori, the little one, felt abandoned and sad. She didn't know why her big sister was gone, and Shelly wouldn't tell her. The night Nikki left, Tori wrote, this is like heartbreaking, Tori wrote a note to Jesus to please bring her back, um... And she said she had no idea where Nikki had gone, but she suspected that she left the house because their mom was mean and cruel to her. She put that note on her windowsill and went to bed. Early the next morning, she woke to her mom punching and slapping her in the face. Tori was six years old. Tori recalled years later, quote, I think that may have been like the first time my mom hit me in the face. It was very scary. She had never acted like that towards me before, end quote. So both of the girls miss Nikki dearly, but they didn't dare bring her up. It was like she was a ghost. It was like she never existed. Trish Trish tried, sorry, that's like a tongue twister. Trish tried to keep Nikki in British Columbia, but of course she was no match for Shelly. And eventually Nikki headed back to Washington, but she didn't go home. Shelly told Nikki that she wasn't a good role model for, for her other girls, and she moved into a tent across from Dave's job site on Whidbey Island. I think that's how you say it. She said it was far from ideal, but it was better than being with her mother. A couple of weeks later, Nikki and Dave temporarily moved into a condo near his job. I don't really know why, but 
she said it was nice because she had like hot running water and she could actually shower. Um, then a few weeks later, she and Dave moved back into the tent after the condo. And the tent was cold and drafty, and by then, Nikki had been looking for a way out. So she got a job in Oak Harbor at a Baskin Robbins, and then she got a second job cleaning motel rooms. And the motel owner gave her a single wide trailer, and she started living in that. She said it was a dump, it was nothing fancy, but she finally felt free. So let's shift a little bit and let's talk a little bit more about Sammy. So on the outside, Sammy was blonde, pretty, and popular. She was, quote, homecoming court material, and she was smart and funny. She got a lot of attention from boys, but by her senior year, she had grown tired of covering up what her mom had been doing to her and her older sister. So she kind of slowly started to admit what was happening. Her teachers would say, you know, hey, you're late with your homework. And Sammy would say, well, my mom threw away my paper. Then they, their teachers would say, Sammy, you're late to class like multiple times. And Sammy would say, my mom made me sleep outside last night and, last night and only let me in this morning to get dressed. The library would tell her, you're going to be charged for missing library books. And Sammy would say, well, my mom burnt my books in the fireplace. So obviously this was causing some concern among the school faculty. And Sammy was called in by the school counselor. And the counselor said, you know, we've been listening to what you've been saying and we're concerned. We know you have a little sister at home and we're concerned about her as well. And we're going to report what you've been telling us. Sammy said that she had mixed feelings and she was happy that they believed her because nobody, she had told nobody anything of the sort. Uh, But she knew that crap was going to hit the fan big time, basically. And then she started to become frightened. The counselor then told her that they were going to make arrangements to have Tori removed from the home, and they were going to call Shelly. And then Sammy absolutely panicked, and she took back everything that she said. She said that she made it all up and that she was lying. So now we're in the summer of 1997, and Sammy had missed the enrollment period for Evergreen State College. College was her dream for as long as she could remember, and because of her mother's sabotage over admission forms, she had missed the enrollment period. So obviously she was devastated. She wanted so much more than to stay with her family. She even had dreams of making it big in Hollywood. So Sammy, this sabotage over the whole college thing had pushed her over the edge. She had had enough, and she started to plan her escape. She was finding it difficult to leave Tori behind, but she knew that it would be okay because Tori was still little and didn't seem to be a target, Um, and the weird punishments hadn't been happening for some time. So the only people Sammy told about her plan were her friends Lauren and Leah, and she trusted them. So just before Sammy and her mom and Tori left for a shopping trip, 
Sammy filled five plastic garbage bags with everything she owned. The plan was that Lauren was going to break into the house, get Sammy's stuff while they were away, and then the two girls would meet up at Lauren's house after. Um, When they returned from the shopping trip, Sammy went upstairs and all of her stuff was gone, so Lauren had been there and gotten her stuff and the plan was in full swing. She told her mom that Lauren had run out of gas and she needed to go pick her up. Shelly said fine and Sammy got into her car and left for Lauren's where she hid for a day. Then she went to her boyfriend's house for a night. And she knew this whole time that her her mother was definitely looking for her, but she didn't care because she was absolutely done. Sammy wrote a letter to her mother, and in this letter she wrote, quote, I thought of all the reasons why I couldn't leave you because I love you so much, and because I love you so much, I wouldn't want to hurt you. I started thinking about hurt and life and how much I hurt and how much you hurt me and how much hurt I caused. So then I thought it would be good for me to leave. Things would be quieter. Things got quieter when Nikki left. And with me gone, everything will be okay. It will be okay. If this is how it was meant to be, then this is how it was meant to be. I just wish you understood, but I now know you never will. End quote. Sammy was scared because she didn't know where she was going to go. But then she got in contact with Nikki. I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure how she did that, but she did. And Nikki told her to call Nana, which was Laura. So Sammy called Laura and Laura gladly took her to her home in Bellingham, which is where Laura was living at the time. And Sammy stayed with Laura all of the summer of 1997. So halfway through the summer of 1997, Shelly was absolutely hounding Dave to find Sammy. So there was an open day at Camp Firewood. I'm not really sure what an open day is, but that's what was said. But um, yeah, there was an open day at Camp Firewood, which was a church camp, and Shelly heard that Sammy and her boyfriend were attending. So Shelly made Dave go there. Sammy saw that her dad was there, like she noticed him, and he approached her and told her that Her mom was worried sick and that she needed to come home with him right away. They argued a little bit and Sammy finally said, you know what, I'll come home, but I want mom to get the paperwork done for college because, you know, she screwed it up, she messed it up, and I want her to fix it. Dave replied with, I don't know about that, and but Sammy wouldn't back down. So eventually Dave left the camp. And Sammy called her mother, and she said that she would consider coming back home if she could get some financial support for school. Shelly ran through so many excuses. You know, they had no money, money was in short supply, yada, 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 but Sammy would not back down. She told her mom, you know, you said that I could go, and you sabotaged me, and you know that you did. Sammy then said quote, I won't tell anyone anything about what happened, end quote. Shelly replied with just a simple, what are you talking about? And Sammy said, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Sammy was essentially blackmailing her mother, and it worked because when she returned home at the end of the summer, 
her mother had not only filled out the paperwork for college enrollment, she had also went ahead and turned it in. So now Sammy was away at college. She got in, she went away, and Tori was all alone in the house. Shelly had reverted to some of her old favorite acts of abuse. Her first attack against Tori came in the middle of the night. Shelly jumped on her daughter and pulled away her comforter. Tori awoke, frightened. She didn't know what was wrong. She thought, oh my gosh, maybe the house is on fire. Maybe my mom's like having a heart attack. She didn't know. And Shelly bluntly asked her, quote, would you ever consider killing yourself? End quote. Tori said no. And Shelly just stood there for a while and stayed silent. And then she finally left the room. Tori's like eight at this point, <laughs> like tiny child. Uh, it, Tori said that she thought to herself, she's going to kill me and make it look like I killed myself. Another day, Shelly got extremely angry about something that Tori, who, like I said, was only eight at the time, had done and shoved her head into an old radio that they had. Tori started bleeding and she started to cry. And she then knew that if her mother really wanted to, she could hurt her beyond her imagination. And Tori had to do whatever her mother told her to do. No questions asked. So this next part is really really disgusting and messed up. But um, once Tori started to hit puberty, her mother would make her undress to see how she was, develop, quote, developing. And Tori would say, Mom, I don't want to do this, but Shelly was persistent. And this is just so disgusting. And I honestly think I could be wrong. I mean, I'm not an expert, but I feel like that is borderline sexual abuse. Like, making your daughter undress for you. Like, just disgusting. We don't need to elaborate on that much more. Um, so, but yeah, she would say, Mom, no, this is creepy. And Shelly would say, oh, your sisters let me do this, so you're going to let me do this. And eventually Tori would give in, and then her mom would laugh at her or say, yeah, like, everything looks good. And this went on for quite some time. And I just feel awful for this poor little girl. Like, I can't even fathom it. And it just goes to show you the type of monster that Shelly is. All right. So now we're going to add a new person. And this new person's name is Ron Woodworth. So Shelly called Sammy's college dorm and mentioned a new friend who was helping out an elderly woman who owned like dozens of cats, but this woman was being evicted from her home in the Riverview neighborhood, and she told Sammy that she had that Shelley had finally landed a job as a caseworker for Olympic Area Agency on Aging in Raymond, and she met Ron through Habitat for Humanity on the case of the woman with all of the cats. Shelley stated that she asked this woman to move in but this woman wanted her own place, and Sammy thought to herself, what a huge relief, because she, know, she knew from experience that no good could come of somebody moving in with her mother. So when Sammy first met Ron, she said she instantly liked him. She said he was quick and sarcastic and funny, and after school, Tori would visit Ron's trailer and look through his books on I think I'm saying this right, Egyptology, 
which was a really big interest of his, and they talked about the gods and mythology and that time in history, and it fascin- that just fascinated him. He was all about that. Um, he told Tori about the importance of life, and Tori grew to absolutely love Ron. She started calling him Uncle Ron, and she said he was her friend, and she had hoped her ally as well. So let's talk a little bit about who Ron Woodworth was. So Ron had a partner named Gary Nielsen, I believe, of 17 years, and they moved to South Bend in the late summer of 1992. Gary's sister was already in the area, and in 95, Ron's parents, Catherine and William, also moved up the coast from California because Ron's father was in pretty bad shape health-wise at the time. So, unfortunately, Ron's father died in June 1996, and Ron completely changed. He became unable to hold a job, and he it like became so bad he really couldn't even carry on a conversation without becoming distracted. Gary couldn't take living with Ron anymore, and in 1997, he left Ron. So, Ron became, he started to, like, really down spiral, and this became really big causes of concern for his small circle of friends, one of those friends being Sandra Broderick. By 1999, Sandra could see that Ron was still having problems, so she offered to have him and his mother, Catherine, move into a five-bedroom house that she owned in Tacoma, but he declined the offer because he told Sandra that he was expecting to move in with his friends Shelly and Dave Nodick. Around July 2000, Sandra made the trip to Raymond to visit with Ron and his mother uh, at the trailer park at the Timberland Recreational Vehicle Park. Unexpectedly, Shelly also showed up, and the visit naturally came to an end. One could say that Ron was pretty down on his luck, because by his mid-50s, he had lost his home, his father, and his partner. He was also estranged from his mother, with whom he had lived after the foreclosure of his trailer in 1999, but according to Ron, worst of all, he had lost his cats, which is very sad. Shelley told Tori that they were going to take Ron in to help him get back on his feet. Shelley set Ron up in Sammy's old room. Ron had a dresser, a bed, and a nightstand with a bedside lamp. He had also brought along a bunch of his books and personal things that he had been able to gather from his mother's place. Um, So things obviously started off wonderful, just like they always did. Shelly was very, very kind to Ron, and Ron loved Shelly. But by the second week he was there, Tori said that she started to notice that Ron seemed to irritate her mom. It started off as just mean words, she would say to Ron. She would call him the F-slur, which is just horrible. Um, She would say that Ron disgusted her and to get out of her sight and to stay away from her little girl. But then it got a lot worse. Ron was no longer allowed to eat any meals with Tori and her mother, Shelly. Shelly served him toast and water, and twice a day she'd feed him a handful of pills. Tori had asked her mother what type of pills she was giving him and why, and Shelly just told her that they were sleeping pills to calm him down. 
Tori recalled, quote, Ron was one of the smartest people I knew, but after he lived here, he just, he didn't know anything. He just wasn't himself anymore. It was like he wasn't even there, end quote. Shelley gave him a very long list of chores to do, and he spent most of his time in the yard, um, and then she took away almost everything he owned and told him that he'd be sleeping on the floor of the computer room that they had. Then, like usual, Shelley said Ron needed her permission to use the bathroom, so she was she was digging her claws in and gaining control like she always did. In the summer of 2001, Ron's friend that we talked about, Sandra Broderick, moved from the Tacoma area to Cap... I don't know how to say this. Capolis Beach on the Washington coast, which was just a little more than an hour from Raymond. She wanted to reconnect with Ron, and she knew that he was living with Shelly. So she would call Shelly several times, um, but each time Shelly would say... Ron was out in the yard or he was just away altogether, and he never came to the phone. The next time Sandra called, Shelly answered and told Sandra that she had no knowledge about where Ron was, Um, but Sandra had had enough of what she was sure was some sort of game, and she told Shelly, listen, you better have him call me or I'm going to call the police. Shelly responded by saying, I don't know where he is, and Sandra said, that's it. If you don't know where he is, then I'm filing a missing persons report, like, obviously. So less than 24 hours later, Ron called Sandra. He told Sandra that he was hiding from the police, staying in Shelley's attic because the police had a warrant out for his arrest. Sandra offered Ron a job working at the restaurant that she then owned and also said that he could come live with her. But Ron refused and said, Shelly's helping me find a new job, house-sitting in Seattle. Just like, what? Um, Sandra didn't really believe this, and she was worried. But after all, Ron was a grown man, and she had done everything she knew to do to help him. Ron was now 56, and he was just beside himself over the wall that was between him and his mother, Catherine. And unbeknownst to him, Shelley was the reason there was discord. So on October 1st, 2001, Ron wrote a letter to his mother. And here's an excerpt from said letter. Quote, when I brought you and father up here, I did not expect you of all people to stab me in the back. We both know that father would be very saddened by your heartless cruelty to me and my cats. Father cannot be cruel to an animal if his life depended on it. On June 8, 1997, Gary Nielsen heartlessly killed me as a man when he abandoned me. Well, congratulations. On October 1st, 2001, you finished the murder by destroying my pride and being a Wordworth. Which is like, wow. Boy, whoosh. Two days later, Ron wrote a three-page letter to his brother and sister. And here's an expert excerpt from that letter. It said, quote, from my own peace of mind, I therefore must wash my hands of any and all responsibility for her and her care. I am, in fact, so mad and furious with her that I will, within the next few months, formally and legally change my name. For my emotional stability, we will, for the foreseeable future, be communicating through Michelle's good graces, 
Michelle really regrets being in the middle of this because she cares, sorry, because she cares about both of us, so I don't blame her for anything, as always. I have to carry the blame for everything. My heart aches, but I need to do this, or I could do something far more serious, and right now that I do not want to do. So in the letter, he says Michelle. He's referring to Shelly. You probably caught on to that, but. On October 9th, 2001, so eight days after that letter, Ron wrote a handwritten letter to his mother once more, and this is the letter in its entirety. It said, Madam, this is to inform you that I am giving Mrs. Michelle Notek permission to remove all my personal property from your home and storage building. What she does with it is none of your business. Once she has removed everything, you will, you will receive no more communication from me. I pray that you will live for 100 years in perfect health, both physically and mentally, and that for every day of the rest of your life, you will remember the cruelty of what you did to me. You are now their responsibility, not mine. I was once your loving son. End quote. Once this letter was sent, Ron was completely alone and didn't have anyone in his life other than Shelley. Okay, we're going to shift gears a little bit uh, just for a second and talk about Nikki and Laura. So Nikki decided in early July 2001 to head down to Oregon to see about finding a new job. And she called Laura and told her this and Laura was thrilled. When Nikki came down that first night, she went to Laura's house and they were, you know, hanging out, catching up and they were watching a crime show on TV and Nikki suddenly became extremely quiet and Laura didn't really say anything, but she noticed that she seemed pretty upset. The next morning, Nikki went to Laura's office and told her that her mother and father killed Kathy. Laura was in shock, and both of them started to cry. Then Nikki told Laura everything about the abuse, everything that she endured, everything that Shane endured. Laura couldn't believe what she was hearing, but she knew that Nikki was not a liar. She was beside herself, but she pulled herself together and told Nikki that they had to tell. Laura called the local chief of police in Sandy, Oregon. He came over, and Nikki shared what she knew and he called the sheriff's office with the jurisdiction over Raymond South Bend and Old Willapa, which was Pacific County, Washington. Um, he got a Pacific County sheriff's deputy. His name was Jim Bergstrom, and he got him on the phone and reported back to Laura. He told them to write everything down and fax it to Pacific County. On July 11th, 2001, Laura faxed three pages to Jim Bergstrom. In this three-page fax, Laura included a copy of Nikki's original statement, which read, quote, Long time ago, when I think I was about 16, when Mom did it, Mom was always mad at Kathy. She treated Kathy really mean. She would hit Kathy with steel-toed lo logging boots of Dad's. She would give Kathy all kinds of drugs, and Kathy was acting weird. This one night, us kids heard all kinds of things, so we peeked in Kathy's room and saw Dad doing something to Kathy because a lot of white foam stuff was coming out of Kathy's mouth. I think Mom poisoned her or something because Kathy so much 
or caused, sorry, or caused Kathy so much brain damage from hitting her in the head, but Kathy wasn't moving. I think she was dead. We had to run back away from the room because we were not allowed to be downstairs and we didn't want mom to know what we saw. She would beat us or do bad things to us if she knew what we saw. After being at the motel, we drove home. We smelled something really bad and rubber burning. Dad was outside throwing all of Kathy's stuff on top of the tires. He kept the pile burning. Mom is going to do something really bad if she knows I told, or she's going to blame Dad, and I hope that he doesn't commit suicide because of me. End quote. Laura never got a response from this fax. Can you believe that? I, <laughs> she never got a response. So, apparently, the, they, maybe they didn't receive it. I don't know. But, nope, no, no response. So, they kind of dropped the ball on that one. But, one night after Nikki had had a few drinks, she confided in her boyfriend, whose name was Chad, and she told him the story. Um, but she told him that her grandmother had it all handled that she faxed a statement to the authorities in Pacific County, but he told Nikki that she needed to tell them in person. Nikki said she was way too scared she couldn't do that, and Chad said, either you tell the police or I will. So the next day, they started for Raymond to tell the authorities in person. Nikki called Sammy as they were driving and told her that she was on her way to the police about Kathy and, or sorry, to tell the police about Kathy, and then she dropped a huge bomb. And she said that she thought their mother had Shane killed. Chad waited outside while Nikki told Pacific County Sheriff's Deputy Jim Bergstrom what she knew about Kathy. Bergstrom told her that he'd been out to the house a few times in recent months asking Shelly about Kathy and her disappearance, but nothing happened. As far as Nikki knew, the deputy never followed up on her statement, never spoke to Sammy, and never searched the house. He never even brought in Shelly for questioning. So that's what Sammy, or sorry, that's what Nikki thought. But however, the deputy had in fact tried to reach Sammy, but Sammy declined to call him back. Sammy figured that Nikki and her grandmother had told the police everything they needed to know, and Sammy, she knew what her mother had done was wrong, but she, was, she didn't want to be the one to put her mother and father in jail. All right, so now we're going to switch over back to Ron and the situation going on there. So as far as Ron's family was concerned, Shelly was kind and smart. They were far away in Michigan, and Shelly was a lifeline at a very difficult time. Shelly was completely lying to Ron's family, saying that he was not looking for a job, not trying to get on his feet, when in all reality she was abusing him and, and keeping him captive. Shelly kept telling Sammy that she wanted Ron to leave, but he refused. She had only intended to help him out through a difficult time in his life, not to not to have him live there forever, she said. Whatever. Uh, Shelly would often visit Evergreen College, which is where Sammy went to see Sammy, and she'd often come with groceries or they'd go together to Target and shop. Most of Shelly's visits were unannounced, and most of them had 
Ron along for the ride, but he would wait in the car the entire time. Sammy and her boyfriend both noticed a rapid decline in Ron's appearance, and they would say to each other, oh, he looks worse than he did last time, or he's, you know, he looks down another notch. He wore a woman's oversized sweatshirt, and he just looked all kinds of disheveled. Sammy recognized that something was definitely going on, but couldn't believe her mother would really be doing to Ron what she had done to Kathy. Nikki had learned from Sammy that Ron was living with Shelly, and Nikki immediately called her mother. Her mother didn't pick up, so she left a message. She said, quote, I know there is a man living there, and you need to get him out of the house before history repeats itself, end quote. Shelly called Nikki back and said, Listen, he's just a family friend, he's really good with Tori, and absolutely nothing is going on. But Nikki knew that something sinister was happening. But what could she do? Shelly would continue to humiliate and abuse Ron for years. She would berate him for being fat, for being gay, for losing his trailer, whatever she could think of. Tori recalled years later, if you looked at him, sorry, Tori recalled years later, quote, if you looked at him, it was like, all the life was sucked out of his eyes. He didn't laugh. He didn't cry. He just sat there, end quote. Okay, you're probably thinking, now, Grace, is there a light at the end of this tunnel? Because this is quite literally awful. And I promise you there is. It's There's a happy ending, but we just have to get through a few more awful things first. So let's just keep on trucking. So uh, even though... Shelly was abusing Ron every single day. She still had use for him, and this one was a really important one. Shelly enlisted Ron to help care for a Pearl Harbor survivor named James Mac McLintock, I think is how you say his last name, who was, he was a family friend of Kathy's mother, Kay Thomas, and coincidentally, the reason Kay had moved her family up to South Bend in the first place. He was a big man who favored second-shelf whiskey and woodworking. He loved his black lab named Sissy, and he relied on the use of a mobility scooter to get him around his house that overlooked the Willapa River. Shelley would say that Mac was the father she never had, and she would say that, you know, she would put lotion on his dry hands and make sure he had everything that he needed. She bragged to others how much Mac loved her. Tori had grown very fond of Mac. He was like a grandfather type figure to her, and Tori enjoyed going over to his house while her mom went about her business as his caregiver. Yes, Shelly was his caregiver. Yeah. Uh, Mac told Shelly that he wanted her to live with him. Instead, she moved Ron into Mac's house. At first, Mac didn't really like the idea of Ron bathing him and taking care of his needs, but in time, the two of them worked things out, and Ron was over there nearly every day, and sometimes he even slept over. So, Laura absolutely freaked when she heard through Sammy that Shelly was caring for an elderly man. She wasn't happy about Ron hanging around Shelly either. So... I mean, she was sure something was going on. She was right. Uh, so she immediately called Deputy Bergstrom at the Pacific County Sheriff's Office. She asked about the Kathy Loreno case, and Bergstrom told her that the case had gone cold. 
unbelievable. Um, he said that he would work on it when he had the time. That made Laura obviously very upset, so she called local chief of police, Dale Schobert, or, Sh yeah, Schobert, I think is how you say it. I'm sorry, I'm obviously really bad at pronouncing names. I'm sorry. I can't even count how many times I've said, I think that's how you say it. Um, yeah, so she called local chief of police, Dale Schobert, who urged her to give the Pacific County authorities a chance to build a case. So it's pretty clear here that this is not being taken seriously. Um, Nikki was never contacted after she reached out the second time following her statement about Kathy. So the police, the authorities are really dropping the ball here. They're really letting these people down. When I was reading this, I was just like getting angry. I was like, you literally had somebody come in and say, I know my mother killed this missing person and they're not doing anything. I, yeah, speechless. Um, so Mac assigned Shelly power of attorney on September 7th, 2001. At this time, the Nodic financial circumstances were absolutely awful. They had no money, and they were in a lot of debt. Uh, I think it was even said that Shelly had listed their annual income at like $3,500, so really bad. On February 9th, 2002, Tori was getting ready to go to a football game when her mother got a hold of her to tell her that she was at the hospital. She told Tori that Mac had fallen and that he was hurt very badly and she was on her way to get Tori. So Shelly went and got Tori and by the time they had gotten back to the hospital, Mac had unfortunately passed away. Tori burst into tears, but Shelly didn't really seem to care. She was just very stoic. And she was actually nearly giddy because she'd been left $5,000. Shelly was kind of vague about how Mac had died at first. Ron was the one who had uh, made the 911 call saying Mac had fallen and hit his head. Um, the authorities didn't really seem too concerned. The examining doctor referred the case for further investigation by the coroner and the prosecuting prosecuting attorney's office when he confirmed that Mac died as a result of acute subdural hematoma caused by a blunt impact to the head. But it was possible that the impact had been caused by a fall. So ultimately, nothing further was investigated. Um, I won't say what I think happened because I truly don't know. But it seems fishy because, I mean, come on. But, you know, that's all I'll say. Shelley decided to tell Tori the latest version of what had happened at Mac's house the day he died. She told Tori, quote, he fell out of his wheelchair and bumped his head real hard. Ron just stood there and let it happen, waited too long to call for help in time to save him. Ron's a useless prick. I know you see some good things about him, but think about but think about it, he's a murderer. He killed our Mac. End quote. Then Shelley would change the story to Mac had fallen into a coma and Ron left him to die. It was always changing and Tori never really knew what had happened to someone who was like essentially her grandfather. Um, in the spring of 2003, Jim Bergstrom, the deputy, 
attempted to serve a restraining order against Ron brought forth by his mother. He caught a glimpse of Ron on the porch as he pulled into the, um, the, the no-tech place. Ron saw the deputy and fled into the field behind the house. Bergstrom got out of the car and called out after Ron saying, it's okay, I'm only here to serve you papers. But Ron kept running and vanished into the woods. So the deputy uh, knocked on the door so he could talk to whoever was home. He waited and waited, but finally he left when no one answered. Uh, 15 minutes later, there was a call from Shelly, and she wanted to meet the deputy in front of the Raymond post office to find out what was going on. So they met there, and Bergstrom told her about the restraining order and his need to serve Ron. Shelly told the deputy that he wasn't living there and that he was living up in Tacoma at the time. Bergstrom shot back and said, don't lie to me. I just saw him at your place. I know he was there. Shelly, being quick-witted, told Bergstrom, well, he probably ran away because there are warrants out for him. He's sick. I've been taking care of him. He has a really bad heart condition. She promised the deputy that she'd have him call. So Bergstrom was like, okay, whatever. Before they left, Bergstrom asked Kath, uh, or Berg, sorry, before they left, Bergstrom asked about Kathy Loreno and Shelly said, I, oh, I haven't heard a word from her in a really long time. Yeah, no, no, duh, you killed her. So it was the summer of 2003 and Ron was getting worse and worse by the day. Shelly started to become panicked because she knew what was going to happen, which is just like, why are you shocked? Like you have stripped this man of food, clothes, showers, using the bathroom. I haven't even really gotten into the torture that Ron endured. I mean, is kind of the same as Kathy, really, just beatings and humiliation. And she, Shelly would make, like, the biggest thing Shelly did in, towards the end was she would make Ron go outside and jump on the gravel barefoot, like, as high as he could for, like, hours. So his feet were all cut up which I think is what uh, led to his eventual death because he, I think his like feet got infected because after he would do that, Shelly and Dave would dip his feet into a mixture of hot, like boiling hot water and bleach. So, I mean, there you go. So Shelly told Tori that she was going to take Ron to Mac's house tomorrow or she was saying, I'm going to take him to Mac's house tomorrow where he could rest a little bit. And Tori expressed concern because he was obviously sick and she didn't want him to be there all by himself. But Shelly assured her that she would go and check on him every single day and there was nothing to worry about. The next morning when Tori woke up, she noticed that Ron was gone. So she asked her mom where he was. Shelly looked at her and told her that she took him to Max that morning. So Tori's window was over the driveway. And anytime someone drove over the driveway, it because it was gravel, it made a distinct and loud crunching noise. Tori knew she was lying, but all she said was, quote, oh, I guess I just didn't hear you leave. 
Shelley called Sammy out of the blue to say that she'd finally would allow Tori to come up to Seattle and spend a few days with her. It was the first time that Tori would ever be visiting her sister, Sammy, in Seattle. Shelly, Sammy, and Tori met for dinner at Olive Garden in Olympia, which was like a halfway meetup spot. Um, Sammy noticed something was wrong with her mom's right hand. It was really badly swollen, and her, her thumb was more than twice its normal size, as if it might be like out of joint. Throughout the meal, Shelly was short with the staff. She was on edge, and she looked just awful. She had lost teeth, and her hair was like crazy a mess. And Sammy said that she just looked crazy. She was agitated all over the place, and something was definitely going on. On the drive back to Seattle, Sammy told Tori that they were going to see Nikki. Tori had some reservations. She didn't know if she wanted to see Nikki, but Sammy assured her that everything would be okay and that Nikki loved Tori. The sisters gathered at Duke Seafood and Chowder House on Seattle's Lake Union, and Tori said it was like encountering the most amazing woman she'd ever seen. Her sister Nikki was 28. She said she was so beautiful, poised, and she said she even smelled wonderful. Tori would later say that seeing her big sister for the first time in years was the biggest deal of her life. The three girls hugged and they ate dinner together and they didn't bring up how terrible their mother was. They just simply talked like sisters. On July 22, 2003, Dave's phone rang and woke him up at his job site on Whidbey Island. It was after two in the morning. It was Shelly and she told Dave that he needed to come home. She said, it's not good. We got something going on here. It's about Ron. He told Shelly that he couldn't make it home until Friday. Shelly, he was expecting an argument, but Shelly said, all right, and hung up the phone. Dave said, quote, she never told me he was dead. She didn't have to. I knew it, and I knew why, end quote. And he was right. Ron was dead. Shelly claimed to have found him dead on the back porch. She said that there had been a heat wave and he had really taken to sit um, sitting out there to let the fresh air circulate over his wounds. She insisted that she tried to revive Ron before realizing he was gone. Um, once, she, once she accepted that he was dead, Shelley dragged Ron's corpse to the pole building and shut the door. There she put um, clean sweatpants on him and put the body in a couple of sleeping bags. Next, she removed all the camping gear from the top of the freezer, opened the lid, and put the body inside. She returned the camping gear to the top of the freezer, arranging it so that no one would know that any of the gear had been moved. Shelly considered every little detail, and after all of that was done, that's when she made the phone call to Dave. So she had everything done before she'd even called her husband. Dave came home on Friday, and Shelly told him that Ron's body was wrapped in sleeping bags hidden inside the freezer in the pole building. Dave had seen this coming, but he couldn't really believe that it was happening again. But he got right to it. He put Ron's body in a couple of black, black plastic bags he had taken from his job site, and he told Shelly to just go back in the house, get, like, get herself together, and that he had this under control. He carried Ron's body through the back gate, but Pacific County was in the midst of a burn ban due to hot, dry summer weather, so Dave couldn't cre cremate 
Ron as he had done with Kathy. So he got a number two shovel with a like a like a hard edge and a blue plastic tarp from the pole building. And he planned out a burial pit and buried Ron's body in a shallow grave in their backyard. While in Seattle with her older sister, Sammy um, had asked Tori about like how things were going on, on at home. And Tori had disclosed that she was indeed being abused by her mother. Sammy told Nikki... And the two older girls decided that it was the safest bet to send Tori back home because they knew that getting the police involved hadn't really worked prior and that Tori was 14, she only had four more years, and they would figure it out in the meantime. So Sammy drove Tori back to the Olive Garden where Shelly met them, and Shelly took her home. Shelly told Tori that Ron was gone, that he'd gotten a job, but Tori knew the truth that Ron was dead. On August 6, 2003, Nikki and Sammy drove down to Pacific County to tell the sheriff what they knew to be true. They were very scared, but they knew what had to be done. The sisters gave their story, the same one Nikki had told before, but this time it was different. Because this time they were believed. Others from the prosecutor's office and law enforcement came in and out of the interview room um, at the sheriff's office, Deputy Bergstrom and members of the prosecutor staff recorded everything that they were saying. They were told that Child Protective Services were going to be getting Tori the next morning. And after disclosing every detail, they went back to Nikki's car for the drive home to Seattle. Deputy Bergstrom knocked on the door of Shelly's house the next morning and Shelly answered it. He told Shelly that he and Caseworkers for CPS were there to collect Tori. They were taking her in on suspected child abuse. Shelly flew into an outrage, and she couldn't understand what they were talking about. She was not abusing her child, um, but they just kind of ignored her. Bergstrom followed Tori upstairs, where she collected a change of clothes and some of her personal items. Tori whispered in the deputy's in the deputy's ear. Quote, you need to get a search warrant and come back in the pole building. There's a bunch of Ron stuff. I'm pretty sure my parents are going to burn all of it. I put some stuff in the chicken coop to hide it, end quote. Which is like, for a 14-year-old, that's really smart. But Dave was looking for Tori, so he went down to the offices of the Pacific County Sheriff's. He was tired and beaten down. And investigators asked if he would consent to an interview, and he couldn't think of any reason not to because, to him, he hadn't done anything wrong. Um, investigators immediately asked him about Ron and Kathy. Dave stayed firm that he and Shelly had done nothing wrong, though his stories his story started to fall apart. Dave said he needed to use the bathroom. The interrogators agreed, and one followed him down the hall just outside the bathroom. Um, and when he walked out, Dave broke down and told the officer where Ron had been buried and where Kathy's remains had been scattered after he had burned her body. Deputies picked up Shelly at Max's house. Sorry, at Max's house. Dave had admitted to disposing of Kathy's and Ron's bodies, but nothing else. He had, but nothing else, and he had not pointed the finger at Shelly, and 
of course, Shelly was keeping her mouth shut. And the tragic irony of all of this was that Dave and Shelly were arrested on Kathy Loreno's 45th birthday. The day after her parents' arrest, Sammy and her boyfriend were driving through Tacoma when Sammy's cell rang. It was Laura, and Laura, in a shattered, defeated voice, told Sammy that Shane was dead, that Dave had confessed to killing him. Sammy dropped the phone and started screaming. She started crying. She was inconsolable. So flashback to 1994, um, after Kathy's murder. Uh, Shane confided in Nikki that he had something that he wanted to show her. He told Nikki, I have proof that your mom killed Kathy. And he showed Nikki Polaroid pictures that he had found of Kathy naked, bleeding, bruised. And in some of these pictures, it looked like she was dead. Um... This jolted Nikki. She was scared. And she mentioned it to her mom, like, I know you killed Kathy. And Shelly denied it. And Nikki said, Shane has pictures, mom. And Shelly flew into an outrage. And she couldn't find the pictures, but she took Nikki's word. And later that night... Dave and Shelly took Shane out to the building, the back building, and beat him to a pulp, but they didn't kill him. It was February 1995, nearly six months after Kathy's murder. It was late, quiet, dark. It was pitch black outside. Dave retrieved his 22 from the cab of Old Blue and went into the pole building to find Shane, which is where they were keeping him at the time. He didn't say a word, but he fired the rifle into the back of his nephew's head and killed him. Dave went inside to tell Shelly what he had done. Shelly acted shocked, you know, like, oh my gosh, how could you do this? Why would you do this? She obviously didn't care. Um, but she asked him, you know, what are we going to do? And Dave responded the same thing we did to Kathy. So Dave cleaned up the mess in the pole building. He put Shane's body in a sleeping bag and burned it in the backyard while the girls were, I, I think the, that, uh, sorry, Shelly had offered the girls to go spend the night at a friend's house. And of course they said yes, so they could get out of the house And while the girls were away, um, they burned Shane's body in the backyard at the fire pit. In February 2004, six months after his arrest, Dave Nodick pleaded down uh, his first-degree murder charge for killing Shane Watson to second-degree murder and pleaded guilty to unlawful disposal of human remains and rendering criminal assistance. Dave insisted that he wouldn't assist in Shelly's prosecution. Uh, For her part, Shelly was desperate to make sure Dave kept his mouth shut, and he was, obviously, because he was constantly under under her control. 
um, he was sentenced to a little under 15 years in prison. 15 years. For murdering a child at point-blank range, assisting in the brutal beatings of three little girls, and disposing of two bodies. He got 15 years in prison. Spoiler alert, he was released in 2016, but we'll get there in a second. So now for Shelly. Pacific County prosecutors told the victim's families they couldn't make the first-degree murder charges stick against Shelly because there was no body for Kathy, no, like, no remains, like they couldn't find anything for her. It was just word of mouth. Um, an autopsy on Ron that couldn't prove how exactly he'd been injured or by whom. Given the condition of Ron's remains, it would be hard to say what he had actually, what had actually killed him. So all that to say, first degree murder wasn't going to stick for, for Shelly. Um, 10 months after her arrest, Shelly entered Um, an Alford plea of guilty to the charges. So an Alford plea is a plea that allows the defendant to plead guilty yet also assert innocence at the same time, which is like really confusing. I don't understand that, but basically a big part of it is allows the defense and the prosecution to save face and money by avoiding going to a trial that would almost surely result in a conviction. So yeah, Shelly, of course, she entered this plea and which she didn't take, she, oh, it makes me so mad. She didn't take any type of accountability or responsibility for these awful things because she also was maintaining her innocence. But she knew that if she pleaded guilty, she could get much more time in prison and all that. So ultimately, both sides worked out a tentative uh, agreement, uh, or sorry, both sides worked out a tentative sentencing agreement for 17 years. Shelly got 17 years in prison. Seven, oh, I like, hello? What are we, what's, what? Like, I understand there's lack of evidence, right? There's, it is, a lot of it is a story and coming from these three girls, but also Dave confessed to murdering. Like I can't, I have like out of loss for words. Like I can't even form thoughts. I can't form thoughts. She got 17 years in prison and spoiler alert. She was released on November 8th, 2022. And we'll get there. Shelly made a statement um, to the courtroom before the judge announced her sentencing and also let it be known that none of Shelly's family was there to support her, obviously. But in this statement, she said, quote, in this jail and in this courtroom and in this community and everywhere else, I'm known as some kind of horrible monster. I'm not. I've made such horrible mistakes, though. Kathy was my friend. She had value and she had purpose. She would have been there for me. I wasn't there for her a lot. I was not there when Kathy died. Not there for her. I believe I am not guilty of murder, of deliberately causing her death, but a mother is the most responsible for her home environment. She was mistreated in my home and now she's gone. 
I'll never get over it, and I don't deserve to. Loser. Loser alert. Shut up. Like, nobody wants to hear your apology. Lame. Like, that's lame. Like, she pointed the fingers to Nikki and Shane of one whom she she killed. I mean, she didn't do it herself, but, like, hello, she am, am, ugh. I can't even form words. It's just so frustrating. Like, why do I, for one, don't think she should have been able to say anything, but I think all defendants are able to say something before they get sentenced if they choose to. But yeah, it was just her way of sliding in there. Like, I'm sort of taking responsibility, but not really at all because she pointed the finger to her oldest daughter and her nephew. So instead of sympathizing with Shelly, which is obviously what she had wanted with that sob story of saying like, oh, I was a mother and bad things happened in my house and a bunch of bullcrap. The judge actually added on to her sentencing after the statement. So the official, uh, her official prison sentence was 22 years, which, like I said, uh, put her at getting out in 2022. And she was released uh, on November 8th. It is said that she has cancer, but that's what she says. Nobody really knows. There's no up-to-date pictures of her. I don't really care to see a picture of her, but from one source, I read that she has white hair now, which is like, okay, she's like 68. I think, yeah, six. she'd be 68. Um, but Dave was released from prison in 2016. He lives on the Washington coast and works long hours at a seafood processing plant. He has some health challenges, and um, he says the only thing that gets him through is his relationship with his daughters, Tori and Sammy. Nikki refuses to see him, um, and I don't blame her. I, it's, it surprised me to read that the other two have relationships with him at all. Um, Nikki says she can neither forgive nor forget, and I don't blame her for that at all. She says she can only move on. She has her own children now. She has her own family. She has her husband and her sisters, and she's doing well for herself. Um, Sammy lives in Raymond. I think Nikki lives in Seattle still, I believe. Um, Sammy lives in Raymond in like a big house. She was a teacher. I'm not entirely sure what she's doing now, but I believe she's married. I don't know if she has children. There's not a whole lot of informa personal information about the girls online simply because I don't think they're, they want, like, they don't want a whole lot of publicity, I believe. Um, but from the book, there's that's like about the extent of what I know. So the book was written in, I think, 2000. And, let me check. I don't know when the book was written, but yeah. So I'm not entirely sure like how up to date everything is, but I know that Nikki has a family. She has a husband. She has children. Uh, Sammy still lives in Raymond, and Tori. She has a new job, and she actually spends holidays with her father sometimes, which is 
beyond my comprehension, but you know, whatever, I guess she, but she wants nothing to do with Shelly, of course. And the sisters, they text and talk on the phone constantly. They meet up um, several times a year, mostly at Nikki's place near Seattle. Um, and they mo- they mainly just talk about the good memories, though, you know, they don't have many. They They talk about the fun stuff, like how I'd talk about the one little story about Sammy putting the puppies in the bucket and pulling it up to um, Nikki while it was awful circumstances. Like that's a sweet sister story. So they talk about, you know, just being sisters and getting through everything together. Um, And there's a direct quote from the book, a direct line that says, while Shelley may have sought to keep them apart, to control them forever, she underestimated the strength of their bond, which was like, oh, how sweet. So, wow, that is the story of the Notech family or the Nautic family or however you want to pronounce it. Boy, oh boy, that was a doozy. <laughs> to be completely honest, I don't have a lot left in me after that case, like a lot left to say. I think the evidence speaks for itself. I think that both Shelly and Dave deserved life in prison. I think they got off way too easily. They're both free, walk like walking around completely free. Um, and that's really frustrating and quite literally like I feel like where's the justice in that? Um, but what can you do? I mean, I understand I do understand why the first degree murder charge wasn't able to stick because like I said, their Kathy's body was gone. It had been so long ago and Ron, there was the autopsy concluded that there was no way to know who inflicted these injuries and what injury like caused him to die. So Shane though, that is, Again, no body, but like, yeah, it's just all, it's messy and intense. And I think that the police dropped the ball quite a few times, especially not following up on um, Nikki's initial statement. I think had they, they could have saved Ron and Ron could still like, would have still possibly been alive today. So that's really upsetting because somebody could have been saved had the police done their job correctly. Um, but that's all I, I really have to say about that case. Um, washing my hands of it and moving on because I've spent way too much time researching and being in Shelley's tormented, disgusting world, and I want to be done with it. I'm happy for the sisters. Like I said, there's limited information on them, but they seem to be doing good. Um And I'm happy that they made it out alive, truthfully. I don't know how they did. But yeah, so that's the case. And if you've made it to the end, um, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, I um, don't – I'm not entirely sure when next week's episode is going to be out. I start my last semester of college next week, so – Could be a little bit busy, but hoping I can get like a quick little episode out for you guys. Um, 
and maybe not such like a heavy hitter and definitely not a two-parter again because that was a lot. But yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed as much as you can with an awful case like this. And it is frustrating. The end is frustrating that the the two murderers in this case are free. But hopefully karma does its thing and comes back around and gets them. I guess that's all the only thing we can hope for. So thank you so much for listening. This has been Serial Reader, and I hope to see you next time. Bye.